Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with social psychologist Dr. Regan Gurung to discuss effective learning strategies and his new book, co-authored with Dr. John Dunlosky, entitled Study Like a Champ, The Psychology-Based Guide to Grade A Study Habits. Regan is a professor and director of the General Psychology Program at Oregon State University. He's published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals and has co-authored or co-edited 15 books. He was a founding co-editor of the APA's journal Scholarship of Teaching and Learning in Psychology and is past president of the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, Psychi, and the International Honor Society in Psychology. Regan is also a recipient of the Charles L. Brewer Award for Distinguished Career in Teaching Psychology by the American Psychological Foundation. Regan and I spent some time discussing the best practices in study habits. One interesting takeaway for me was hearing about the existence of default study habits, things like rereading over material, and how they can limit our ability to learn information in an effective manner. With only some simple changes, we can make much better use of our study time. I also noticed a theme emerging from many of the ideas we discussed, and that is the idea that learning benefits greatly from variation. For teachers, this means avoiding spending too much time just plain talking about the material and building in breaks for discussions, activities, etc., For students, this might mean mixing in completely different study topics within the same study session and occasionally quizzing yourself on the material. This episode is essential for teachers, students, or anyone attempting to learn a great deal of information on a new subject. Enjoy. Okay, I'm, I'm here today with Regan Gurung. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Ryan. I love talking about teaching and learning and studying. So this is uh, a great opportunity to talk about it some more. Yes. So uh, lots of different uh, avenues to go down in, in terms of discussing learning and studying. Uh, I did want to spend the the first part of our discussion talking a little bit more broadly about learning, and then we'll sort of dive into your um, uh, your book, which is called uh, Study Like a Champ, The Psychology-Based Guide to Grade A Study Habits. Um, so what I'd like to start with is sort of how educators should be thinking about learning. And whether or not it's important to differentiate between the idea of learning and perception of learning. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, I I come across a paper recently and it says it's looking at instructor ability or instructor clarity. And they find that uh, charismatic or very clear instructors, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing their operational definitions here, but Instructor clarity makes students like the course more, but it doesn't improve learning. And it was interesting. It's like, how many of these things that we implement in our classrooms impact perception of learning, but don't actually uh, help with retention of material? So could you just start by talking a little bit about about how we should probably think about measuring learning in in the context of studying and 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 outcomes in the classroom. Boy, Ryan, so so that that is such a great question. We could probably spend the whole chat just talking about it. Let me carve it up into two big areas, right? First, let me get out of the way a pet peeve many of us educators have, which is the way learning has been measured in higher education for many years now is not really the best way, right? When you think about learning, so often we think about, oh, I've got to take this exam. I've got to take this multiple choice exam. Well, many of us are asking, is that the best measure of learning? 
right? Uh, a student's responses on a multiple choice exam, a student's uh, responses on a end of term exam. Is that really learning? Is that mm -hmm. the kind of stuff you hang on to for a long time? So, you know, that's its own category over there, which is how do we really measure learning? Is learning you applying it to your life? Is learning you remembering it for a long period of time? And I think that's an important distinction for us to think about here, because when we get to your question of the perception of learning versus learning, really, we've got to say, is what's happening in the classroom, are my actions, is my studying behavior, is the faculty or instructor behavior, is that learning to the score I get on that multiple choice exam versus is that making me apply and understand this and retain it for a long period of time? So that's one level of things to keep on because... And I make this, thing, this, this distinction because there are some behaviors study behaviors, cramming, for example, that may make a difference in an exam tomorrow, but you probably won't, not just probably, the data shows that you cram tonight, you'll probably do okay tomorrow, but you almost definitely won't remember it in two weeks from now versus doing those other things. So right off the bat, what we mean by learning needs to be examined. Now, mm -hmm. that was the, I've shuffled, let me deal to really get to your question. Right. Um, I think there are many elements of our experiences that we may think influence our learning, but that don't. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a really important example. Active learning versus passive learning, right? And to truly make this distinction between learning and perception of learning, a great study that came out a couple of years ago where in uh, one class, they varied whether the students were taught using active learning measures, you know, group work, interactions, and so on, versus passive learning, the good old just listen to an instructor talk. Right. Now, what was really neat about the study was that they they had the same, uh, it, they did both these methods in the same course. And then they asked students, what did you like? When did you think you learned better? And what was very clear was the students said they learned better in the passive learning condition. Interesting. Okay, right? But here's, here's the kicker. When it came down to objective learning as measured by an exam, it was the students in the active learning condition that did better. Right. And this is huge because I mean, one of something that is that is burnt on my memory is walking behind a couple of students who were exiting a very large lecture class. It wasn't mine. Uh, and they were talking to each other and they said to almost directly quote, Man, why doesn't he just lecture? What's all this lecture active learning stuff? I just want to sit back and write stuff down. End quote. And that's that's passive. And I think the data now shows. Some students may like that more, but they're actually learning more from active kind of work. So active learning may be uncomfortable, but you're actually learning more. And I think that really gets at this. Our perceptions of learning are not the same as learning objectively measured. Right. Now, the it, it is kind of interesting that that, you know, the trend has clearly been towards more uh, experiential active learning types of classrooms over the past um, maybe 20 years or so. Um, so my question is because I, I tend to be very um, old school in that I, I, I really, really like to produce compelling lectures. And of course I sprinkle in interactive activities in these lectures. Um, if, if we see that experiential learning might might be better in terms of outcomes what is the place for these classic kind of lecture environments yeah i think uh first off we really have to rethink what we mean by the lecture right okay. uh i think lectures get a bad rap to be quite honest uh First off, there are a couple of myths about the lecture. Uh, there is, uh, in the first chapter of the book, we tackle a whole bunch of learning myths, 
right? And one of the learning myths I love talking about is this learning pyramid. There's this this pyramid meme that makes the, the makes the circuit every fall when school starts. And this learning pyramid, you've probably seen it. It it, it shows the lecture at the top, and and then it has active learning at the bottom, and it says. Students learn only 10% from a lecture, but 80 something plus percent if they're active learning or group work or whatever. First off, that's a complete myth, right? I love the fact that that data is not real. It's not real. It's even got a nice little citation. So if, if listeners, if you've seen that learning pyramid even and you've thought, oh, look, it's got a lab citation, it's still a myth, all right? It's still a myth. And I think it really makes us say, whoa, because most people go, oh, look, lecture, 10% of learning is lecture. First, that's wrong, right? There are so many variations of lecture. There are, um, you know, and what a student is doing while listening to a lecture varies as well, right? Uh, I'm also going to say our whole definition of passive versus active needs to be examined a little bit more. I can design a very engaging lecture Throw on the Socratic method, you know, questions and examples and real life vividness. And you may be listening, but you could be active based on what I'm asking you to do, right? If I'm throwing out a question and pausing, right? Something I do a lot in my in my classes is uh, I have students use one of the skills we've talked about in the book, retrieval practice, where I will stop and I'll say, hey, this reminds me of something we talked about earlier in the term. Can you remember such and such? And I'll stop. Now, I'm I'm lecturing, but right there, I'm forcing a point of active engagement. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just think a lecture especially is has a place it's how you do it it's it's you know one of my big tips to instructors is learn good ways to deliver lectures right, right. and and lectures should not be what they were a hundred years ago which was hey look books aren't available you know uh printed books are hard to come by the only way you're going to get content is by me standing up here and spilling it well that's what it was circa 150 years ago that's right. not how it is today and we've got to remember that. Now, uh, another thing that you, in terms of a trend that I've been seeing in classrooms is sort of um, increasing the amount uh, or increasing the diversity of media. So rather than a textbook, um, you, these massive shifts towards um, a mix of video, uh, maybe a maybe a podcast, um, uh, you know, all, all kinds of different ways to take the material and present it to students. Now, on the surface, it, it seems as though that's probably a good thing, right? You have different ways of of presenting the material and students might prefer one or over the other based on just their personal preference, right? Um, my question to you is, um, do you what are the pros and cons of this? Because I I suspect there's some sort of 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 risk, which is which is elimin eliminating the reading part. Uh, that's something I've seen in in a couple different contexts where it goes all video, all audio, uh, because students are pushing back against the reading part. So could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of diversifying media within a classroom? Absolutely. Um, I think a big issue here is accountability, right? Uh, I always, I like to remind uh, students and fellow faculty that in studies of predicting learning, in studies of predicting learning, and there've been some big meta-analyses out there of predicting learning. When you take a look at what predicts learning, it's not 100% the instructor or 100% the student, right? And the actual numbers fall someplace in the vicinity off. And, uh, you know, this may surprise you if you're like, you know, and I'm not going to give you a little, hey, how much, what percent of learning do you think is the instructor? But it may surprise you to know that when you try and predict learning, about 50%, 5-0 is the student and what the student is doing. Another 25%, maybe 15 to 25% is what the, the instructor is doing. And then the rest is other factors like peers and upbringing and stuff like that. And again, this is from some, some massive uh, meta-analyses out there. I bring this up because when you think 
think about how much media, right? Uh, very often there are instructors who go, if I don't have a lot of media, people will get bored and they'll tune out. Uh, there are many of us who may think, you know what, our students' lives now is so much media, so much, you know, uh, Instagram and images that the class should be like that or they won't do it. Well, I understand that. Uh, but the reality is we've also got to say, look, who's accountable for learning, right? Just because you've paid tuition doesn't mean everything has to ride on the shoulders of the instructor, right? We as learners need to take some accountability, right? So we do have to be accountable to read. Uh, we should be responsible for material that's in the textbook. Uh, and and so, but but in the classroom, it's still fair to say, please, can you don't give me exactly what's in the textbook, right? right. Use this classroom opportunity to expand on it. And this is where good course design comes in. So to really come to the core of, you know, what's what's the deal with, with technology? Uh, I, I like to evoke a classic psychological phenomena, which is habituation. When things are exactly the same, you know, the buzz of your air conditioner or whatever, uh, at first we notice it, but then we tune it out. In the same way, if every class session is 50 minutes or, in my cases, 150 minute, uh, minutes, you know, we, we meet four hours a week face-to-face, -face. if it's exactly the same, it's easy to habituate to it and have it be harder to, to pay attention to. And so interspersing your class session with a video, with a discussion, you know, with something else, that's just good for human being attention, you right. know, but you don't want to swing to the other direction. You don't want to swing to the other direction when you go, this is a, a as well produced as a big budget Hollywood film, you know, it's got the bells and the whistles. No, but just be, be, be human, right? We humans don't just want to be talked to. Right. But by the same token, we should be just sitting down and watching a whole bunch of stuff. It's that balance. And this is where course design comes in. This is where teaching a learning how to teach comes in. But at no point does it say, I'm going to do everything for you, student. Sit right. back. No, it's it's accountability. Again, let me underline that statistic. 50% of learning is what the student is doing, which is why our study behaviors book is so important. 50% people, 50% is what you, the learner, is doing. Right. So let's, yeah, let's dive right into uh, these strategies that, that students can implement uh, to increase their retention uh, of, of the material. Um, so you start start this uh, book in early in the chapters, you start talking about planning, right? Yep. Uh, plan the interesting thing about planning to me is that it's something that it's one of those things where people think that they're adequately doing and they're probably not, right? Um, you know, I, I know I do it. <laughs> You know, it, you sort of, um, w without uh, assessing yourself, you, you can very <laughs> easily convince yourself that that you know something and you don't. Um, what's the most common uh, mistake that students make in terms of planning how to study? Yeah, I think the single biggest mistake that rides to the fore is not planning, literally not planning for what could go wrong. Right. And and the way I like to think about it is this. Let's say it's Friday. You see the two days of the weekend stretching in front of you and you plan to get your paper done and your reading done and this done and your that done. And that looks great. That sounds like a great plan. But have you considered what else is happening this weekend? Is there a game that you're going to? Uh, is there a chance that your friends will invite you out to do something? So the, the average individual who has planning problems doesn't plan for all the possibilities of what could happen and furthermore doesn't plan on what they could do if those things happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And both of these parts are important. So let's just say you've planned to get a paper done and now somebody's invited you to go to a movie. If you've anticipated in your plan, you will know whether to say yes or no. You'll either say, hey, I've planned for some fun movie time or you will say, ha, I knew something like this would happen. Nope, I've got a paper. 
But when we don't plan, we get taken by surprise by these by these curveballs, and then they derail our plan. So really, that's the big thing. We need to anticipate what could make what could go wrong, and practice what would do if those distractions or barriers do point up, uh, pop up. And that's probably the single biggest issue that I see. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, that's really good advice for all types of goals, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I discuss, yeah. uh, I, I, I've called this barrier brainstorming uh, sometimes where you sort of look at, I like that. Yeah. Uh, if you want to stay on track, it's uh, it, it's essential not to just plan what you need to do, but to plan those sort of contingencies, like exactly what yep. barriers could come up. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of uh, a lot of the way that you frame the strategies deal with sort of um, uh, uh, myths around studying. Um, everyone has. I'm sure there are trends in sort of the default study habits. Um, if you had to pick one uh, specific study habit that is fairly common that we need to stop doing immediately, uh, out of all of out of all of the tips and tricks in the book, which what would you choose? Yeah, this is this is actually pretty easy. Uh, it's rereading the material. Uh, you know, far too often, and I think a very natural tendency is, I've got some time, I'm going to reread the material. Biggest, biggest issue right there. Instead of rereading, test yourself, test yourself. Uh, I'll, I'll take it up one more little notch because, you know, many listeners may go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I don't just reread. I use my flashcards. <laughs> well, you've just you've just taken the problem. You've changed it a little bit. Uh, and now you're working too much on flashcards. Uh, actually, one of the one of the studies that got me started on this, gosh, what is it, twenty years ago now? One of the earliest studies I did was on how students study, and more specifically, how much time they use on key terms. And Ryan, this may surprise you, but what I found was the amount of key term usage, especially with flashcards, was negatively correlated with exam scores, right? The higher, the more students use flashcards, the less their exam scores. And this seems like the most counterintuitive thing because that student would have said, oh my gosh, I spent so much time on flashcards. But the problem is because flashcards is just one form of memorization, you want, that student wasn't doing, or those students weren't doing those things to truly get the learning going, which is why Testing yourself seems like a flashcard deal, but testing yourself is more because you're retrieving the material over and over again, and then you're doing something with it when you truly practice uh, your retrieval practice. So that's a really big deal there. If if you have time, whether no matter what you're learning, if you have time, instead of instead of rereading the material, test yourself on the material. One of the single best things you do if you have no time to do anything else, test yourself on the material. And I wonder, I wonder if if the if the discomfort in the process of testing yourself factors in. You know, there's there's been a lot of talk about you know a lot of trends in social media about the importance of of being uh, uncomfortable. Right, it's the source of growth. If you want to build muscle. Um, you should you should be you should have a little bit of pain at the end, not not injury pain, but you have you, in order to have muscle growth, you have to have a little bit of pain. You have to stress the muscle enough so that you can it can rebuild. I'm curious if the process of studying a lot of students uh, avoid testing themselves because it's it's more demanding. It feels like a lot of uh, feels like a lot more work to to sort of sit there and stare at something and oh, let me think, let me think. Uh, and maybe they get tired of that. I'm not. I'm not really sure why students um, uh, avoid that that process of testing themselves uh, so much. You know, I, I think it's actually related to the same reason why people push off writing, right? Uh, a writing a writing assignment or an essay. And and here's what I think that reason is. The reason is I'm not ready yet, right? There's this perception that I'm not ready yet. And whether it is a suggestion for getting started on a writing assignment or for a test, starting before you think you're ready 
is a key way to go. Start before you think you're ready. You may not think you're ready, but but test. And I think there are ways we instructors can facilitate that more. Uh, one, one of the things that uh, I do, and I know many instructors do, is we do a pretest. And based on uh, the research in cognitive science, I tell my students to get at exactly my hunch of why they don't start. I tell my students, take this pretest before you've even read the chapter. That's okay. Even if you only mm. skim the chapter, that's okay. Because by virtue of taking that pretest, and mind you, it's really low stakes. It's really low stakes. Actually, the way my pretest is, is set, you just take the pretest, you get a number of points. So I'm facilitating you getting exposed to that material. You testing yourself on that material, you may not get a lot right, but when you then go to read the material, you've structured your brain to mm. get that material in more, you know? So that's, I think, I do really think it's that feeling of, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to test myself. I haven't studied yet. No, start. Start yeah. before you think you're ready uh, and do that. And I think that that sets up your your your, your brain to take that in a lot better. Uh, you know, you you mentioned you know you mentioned the the feeling side of thing. Let me just throw in a little bit of 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 memory and neuroscience. Um, we've got really a short capacity working memory, and our challenge is to get stuff from working memory into long term memory. Uh, and the way we can do that, the more we rehearse things, you know, it, it it gets solidified a little bit more. But what this whole testing yourself seems to suggest is that by virtue of testing yourself often, you're actually strengthening the pathways, the neural pathways that's getting stuff more, more securely placed into long-term memory. So, you know, when, when I first heard that, I think that really helped me with the why test and that whole process of of asking yourself, do I know this? That's actually helping solidify those memories in long-term memory, which again, you know, you're more likely to remember and use much further down the line. Yeah. And I mean, and even, you know, in the, now that everyone has a smartphone, it's actually, it's, it's somewhat rare to have that, uh, that space between I need to know something and I'm thinking of something and I, and, and I recall that thing. So I, I remember right. I was, I was at a trivia event and, you know, it was, uh, there's a certain character's name from the, from a TV show I was trying to remember. And I mean, I spent two and a half, three minutes just sitting and thinking, and I eventually recalled the, the name of the character and it was, it felt it felt novel. It felt bizarre. It's like the, I couldn't even remember the last time that I engaged in sort of this process of trying to recall something. And it sounds like that, that process of recall is sort of what you're looking for. Oh, absolutely. And, and I cannot resist picking up on a phrase you, you used in there, which was spend some time thinking uh, with our smartphones, with Instagram, with TikTok, with all the with all of this, it is so easy to dive into and be swept away with distraction that that actual time that we spend thinking is limited. Uh, there are many times when even music, you you know, I love music, but there are times when I'm driving and I will switch off the radio and I will just let myself think. Quite clearly, I don't text when I drive. That's divided attention. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, I even turn off the radio so I can just think. A great study came out of Japan. You may have run into this just a couple of weeks ago where they gave uh, individuals the option of sitting in a room without their phones and thinking or sitting in a room with their phones scrolling the news. Um, a lot of people, you know, opted for the sitting the phone scrolling my news, uh, the news, but they then had a group of, of, of participants actually be in the no phone condition. And even though those participants thought they would not like it, even though they said they would have rather been in the phone scrolling news condition, they actually reported feeling much, much better and clearer and with that time to think. And they said almost exactly what you said, that ability to think that they were forced to think a little bit actually felt good. And I think we need to give all of ourselves that time to just think a little bit more. So let's talk about a note taking for a moment. Um, I 
I, w- one of the things that always bothered me with students taking notes is, is it, it bothered me if it felt like it was a substitute for paying attention. In other words, you know, I took notes in college, but, but it was, it was, it, it's fundamentally different from sort of jotting down ideas versus, you know, comprehensive notes. And I think sometimes students, they find it, uh, you know, I, I, this term popped up intentional procrastination, attentional procrastination. The idea that it's a little bit easier to write down some every everything someone is saying than it is to process it. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, if that's consistent with what you've seen in the literature about note taking, but could you talk a little bit about, about what yeah. good note taking looks like? Yeah, this is this is something that especially uh, after the pandemic got to be an even bigger issue because even before the pandemic, I had noticed uh, both noticed and looked at the research on that when students were in online classes, they weren't taking notes. Right. There was this basic, hey, I'm in an online class. I don't need to take notes. The pandemic happened. Uh, I studied what students were doing when they're on Zoom. And guess what? Note taking dropped off. Uh, and when we started going back into the classroom and I looked out there and I should say I teach uh, sections of 400 people. I So I can see a lot. I am seeing a lot every term. Uh, and note taking dropped off, uh, and it's it's slowly coming back because I know at least I I push it. I'm pushing it a lot. A lot of my students are are doing doing it because I'm pushing it. But the issue with note taking uh, notes taking notes does so much that uh, actually it was one of the reasons that in a short nine chapter book we have a whole chapter on note taking. Why? Because there's lots of nuance to note taking, and and here's the deal. Uh, notes are not just a capturing more stuff to study, right? And I think this gets a little bit at, you know, you feel better. Oh, look, uh, there's the textbook. There's the stuff the instructor says in class. I need to just capture it like a tape recorder and I'm good, right? Well, the reality is recording what's going on is just one part of it. And I think, you know, It's what you do with those notes. You should be revising your notes. You should be reviewing your notes. And we talk about the three R's, you know, record, revise, and review. Because to get to the cognitive science of it, your note-taking should be not just what keeps you on track, but it's you processing what the instructor is saying, right? And so, uh, you know, my classic example is if I slack and you know just put too many words up on my on my slide, uh, it's almost humorous but somewhat sad when the moment I change slides, everybody goes down and starts writing, right? Because I've just thrown a whole bunch of text up on on the screen, mm-hmm. and I think that gets at this knee jerk. This stuff on the slide, let me write stuff down. Well, that's that copying down. That's that, I think, to some extent, that is attentional procrastination. There's stuff up on the slide. I've got to write it down. My job is done. Well, note-taking needs to be more than that, which is why I make sure that I slow down and talk about ideas and talk about concepts and then give the students time to process what I've said, put that into their own words, and write it down. That's the optimal note-taking. When you're not just copying down what's on the slide, you're not just, you know, transcribing what I am saying, but you are listening, doing something with it, and then writing it down. And notice how this actually takes the instructor paying attention. If I'm just throwing slides up there, yeah, people are going to rush to get it written down, right? If I'm just rush babbling away, yeah, people may be just rushing to write down exactly what I'm saying, but I have to be cognizant and I have to build in time for people to think about what I've said, to wait a little bit. And, and that's why I've got a lot more comfortable with pauses and silences because people need to think not all of us process information in the same rate. And I think That's a large part of good note-taking is being able to pause and reflect on what the instructor is saying. But yep, that also does take the instructor giving you time to do that. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the major reasons I think this this book is worth picking up. Just sort of the to give you some structure around note taking uh, would be very helpful. Um, so the uh, other parts of the book you discuss um, sort of principles that are good for bolting on to uh, the learning process when you're reviewing your notes or when you're reviewing reading these sort of ideas. Uh, one of the ideas you mentioned is interleave, interleaving. Uh, there's, it, it made me think of sort of something that I try to do with my students, which is at any time you, any time you have a new concept, you try to, I, I always try to convince them to personalize it as best as possible, at least once. So if it's, you know, if you're in a psychology class and you're learning about, uh, uh, narcissism for example it's like try to you know try to think of that person <laughs> that person that you've met that can that 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 you're familiar with that might relate to some of those traits of a narcissist or something like that but just you know something to make it personal and you talk about all the uh, lots of different way things that you can bolt on to individual concepts to help help aid in retention could you talk about uh, a few of those yeah, uh, you know, first, first, uh, a nice example of operationalizing exactly what you just said, what you have your students do, and uh, a good friend and colleague, Drew Appleby, calls it the flashcards plus method. And I love the flashcards plus method because um, students are very willing to create flashcards and things like that. And but what the flashcard plus method is says this. Uh, on your flashcard, whether it's virtual or on paper, you have the textbook definition of the term, you know, what is narcissism? You have the definition in your own words, and then you have an application of that word or term. So now your flashcard isn't just one item on the back, the textbook definition, it's now got three. It's got the textbook definition, the definition in your own words, your application. And what this illustrates is the bottom line with learning and studying. Do more stuff with what you want to learn, right? Technically, that's deeper processing, but I like the everyday. Do more stuff. Chew on this stuff more, whether it's coming up with the applications, whether it's uh, an even better study with a friend and ask each other to come up with applications, right? Uh, it just doesn't have to be us, the instructor, doing it. You know, friends can ask each other about, you know, a term or a concept or an application. So that I think that's one very uh, clear-cut, uh, pragmatic issue. You mentioned interleaving. Uh, interleaving is something I think a lot of students don't think about doing, and that's really not having a study session be just one topic or just one discipline. So you can think about interleaving in, in, in two ways. One way is, look, this evening, I'm going to study my psychology and my biology and my chemistry. And I'm going to, you know, spend about an hour on each, but I'm, I'm going to interleave these just like, you know, I put together different sheets of paper. Another way to think about it, and I think this is particularly uh, important in especially large introductory classes, uh, is when don't just study one chapter at a time. Try and mix up your chapters together so you're testing yourself from more than one chapter. Yeah. Uh, cognitive it's, science. It, yeah. It's also, it's also I, I really like this because it's, it's very counterintuitive. It, it makes yep. you think like you would you would want to, you know, spend so much, you'd want to, you know, like you said, rereading as, as being a, a mistake, uh, very counterintuitive, right? I, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, I think the, the tendency is to say, I want focused attention just on my biology or just on my psychology. And I think there's a fear that studying anything else will be a distraction that will keep stuff from going in. In fact, what's happening is by studying something else, you're actually strengthening the memory cues, if you want to call it that, for, for the first thing that you studied. So when you study the psychology and switch to the biology, you know, we also talk about stuff like interference, right? There's, there are technically, there are things called proactive and retroactive interference, where what you do before or after interferes. But 
I think what we're seeing with, with the work on interleaving is that when you're studying different kinds of topics, it's actually making you strengthen each topic so that it can be distinct from the next topic that's coming down the pike. So yeah, I'm I'm with you completely. It is so counterintuitive to think, oh, let's interleave here. But uh, that's really the way to go. And and for some disciplines, and you know, and that's one of the nice things about writing this for students is, you know, thinking about the reality that students have, which is taking four or five different classes. I think so so too often. Uh, I know, and I know when I was a junior instructor, I it was really hard for me to recognize that. There was a world outside my one class, you know, and I think we too often gave students tips on, oh, clearly my class is the most important. Well, that's not the case. Students have at least three to four other classes and they have a life just like we do. And I think interleaving really, you know, tackles that and goes, yeah, here's why this is good. Uh, So towards the end of the book, um, you bring up something that I was hoping to see. I was working through these study habits. And then I was delighted to find out at the end that you address that uh, the importance of preparing your mind and your body to learn an entire chapter dedicated to uh, what what you need to take care of personally before any of these study habits can be applied in the first place. Right. I mean, uh, I would go so far as to say it might even be the most important piece. I mean, you know, if you have study habits or you have good note-taking habits, if you show up to class and you're t- too tired, for example, it's going to be really hard to apply this stuff. Um, what are the what are the, the the main points that you think are important for um, being in the right headspace for learning? Yeah, you know, your comment makes me think, Ryan, that uh, if we do a second edition, we should always o- almost make chapter nine be chapter one, uh, because I think you're right. You know, it's, it really starts with you. Are you ready to learn? Uh, if you have stress in your life, uh, if you have personal issues, mental health issues, physical health issues, it's really tough to, to focus on your studying. Uh, and it actually goes back to, to what I said a little bit earlier uh, about uh, we as instructors, we as learners have to know that there's more going on than just the class, right? Uh, that one class fits in with my the other things, other classes. Uh, if you're a student athlete, that adds on things. If you are a caregiver, that's adding on things. If you're a parent or, you know, that adds on things. So it's really, I think, uh, don't forget about yourself and more, most importantly, it's those factors such as physical activity, uh, nutrition, right? Nutrition is a big deal. It's a huge deal that I don't think we think enough about. I hear so many students who, uh, I, first off, there are, are many, many students who have uh, may not have enough money for food or enough time for food. I'm really glad at, for being at a university that has a lot of food, uh, of, of resources for individuals with, with money problems for food, because that's really important. If you can't, if you aren't eating well, that's really important. My, the first day of class, I share resources for where to get food or support. And almost every term, a student or two will come up and ask me for more information on that. And I just feel good that we have those resources on campus. Uh, but it's not just food, right? It's it's physical activity. And here, I don't mean you've got to go to the gym and pump weights or pump iron or whatever. Even just getting outside and walking for a little bit and, uh, you know, you may go say easier said if you're in Florida than if you're in Wisconsin, uh, but still some kind of physical activity uh, is important. Eating well is important. Uh, the reality is you don't have to take a nutrition course to know, or maybe you you know I'll just tell you right now don't take the course. But here's the deal: different kinds of food categories give you different amounts of energy, right? I mean, protein gives you energy for longer. Right. Mm-hmm. And even if you're a vegetarian, there are ways to get protein. But knowing that you've got your protein, that'll keep you going longer, especially mm-hmm. if you're somebody who has to, in quotes, sit through a two hour class. Eating well, hydrating yourself well is important. You know, forget about the eight glasses a day. No data, no data on the eight, eight glasses, but being hydrated is pretty reliably linked to attention and 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 focus. So, uh, and of course, how can I, how can I not say the big word sleep, 
right? Uh, sleep is just, if you were to say, gosh, what's the one thing, what's the one health behavior that probably has the most benefits? It's doing what you can to sleep better. Uh, and it can even be the simple things. If you go, look, I have limited control about that. Well, make sure that the quality of sleep you get is better. Make sure it's really dark when you go to bed. Try and keep to the same sleep-wake cycles. Well, All it's, also, that, it's yeah. also very sinister too, because without sleep, I mean, you literally, your memory doesn't work as well. You, you, it's literally, and you know, it's not like you wake up in the morning and feel that you don't remember you don't feel immediately that you have trouble recalling things, but uh, as, as a lot of this, this day, the, the, the data and sleep shows you, you, it has a severe impact in your ability to learn anything. Right. 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 And, you know, and, and yes, talking about sleep here are two really key data points for listeners uh, that I know changed my approach and made me work way harder. Number one, when you sleep, uh, sleep has a memory consolidation function. Right. Uh, so for everybody out there, if you've got a lot to do for tomorrow, you're actually better off doing it and then going to bed than waking up early and doing it. Because if you do, let's say you're reading and then go to bed while you sleep, there's memory consolidation going on. That's pretty cool in itself. But here's one, something that's even cooler. Let's say you have to do problems. Right. Let's say you're working on whether it's math problems or any kinds of problems really neat studies show that if you work on very difficult problems right before you go to bed and stop, there's a good chance that when you wake up while you've slept, you will have solutions to those problems that you may not have had if you just kept working at it. You know, So here's that thing where, yeah, work on those problems that are tough, but then realize that if you actually then go to sleep, again, that sleep process helps problem solving as well. So just so many good things to say about sleep. So we're running out of time, but I, so I want to wrap up talking about test anxiety. Uh, I, I feel like uh, it's it, it, the numbers are growing in terms of how many students report test anxiety. Um, and it very, very quickly sort of, oh, I, I have test anxiety. That's why that, that that's explaining uh, my, my poor, my poor outcomes and in, in grades and stuff like that. Uh, I saw a paper recently that, or uh, perhaps it was an article. I don't want to misspeak, but I read an article that, uh, that uh, proposed that, that anxiety test anxiety as something that's independent from how prepared you are may be a myth that, that test anxiety could potentially be explained by your preparation. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so as, as a health psychologist, uh, I studied this, especially in the context of stress. And, and uh, when you look at stress and when you look at social support, one of the findings is that there's a certain kind of stress that comes from not having enough information. And there's a certain kind of support that's actually providing information. And it's called, easily enough, informational support. Sometimes we get stressed if we are uncertain about something. Uh, we get stressed if the instructions for an assignment aren't very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And yes, we may be stressed if we haven't had enough time to prepare. But that said, I think the bigger issue is I think we sometimes misinterpret that anxiety as a negative thing when it's really a very natural preparation for doing a challenging task. Now, I will I will say there is just like depressed mood, there is depressed mood and then there's clinical depression, right? They're not the same thing, right? Depressed mood is a lot more common. Depression or clinical depression whole nother ball of wax. And I think in the same way, there is test anxiety that's at a clinical level. And then there's, I'm a little anxious about this exam. You know, we have been mm -hmm. conditioned to be wary of exams, right? We have been conditioned to be wary and nervous about uh, being tested. And I think one thing, and there's some really neat work on this, is changing the attribution of that exam, changing the the label of that nervous feeling. And if you say, wait, this nervous feeling is because I care, 
This nervous feeling is because this is where I'm going to see how I'm doing. And it's a natural preparation. Well, I think that can take some of that down. Now, I think all of us can be- benefit from a little bit of mindfulness and a little bit of calming down before. And, and here we get back to some neat physiology, especially because of the hippocampus and the amygdala being so close to each other. You know, the activation of one could influence the activation of the other. And that's those two brain parts are, you know, memory and emotion. So it's not surprising that if we get nervous, we may not be able to recall something. Uh, it's really a good practice to come up with an exam-taking strategy or routine that can help you calm down before taking an exam. But to circle back to where we started, I think uh, test anxiety, uh, there are definitely extremes. Uh, Yes, it's somewhat related to preparation, but I don't think preparation or not being prepared is the lion's share of the variance. I think it's this knee-jerk reaction that we need to Reattribute or change our appraisal about, and I think that'll change how we and and learn some test taking strategies that can ease ease things as well. Yeah, I I, I know in my class we we've been beating the drum about about viewing or interpreting stress uh, as a potential source of improvement. It, it, it's something mm-hmm. that we need in order to perform at a high level in many cases. So I I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, so we are out of time. Uh, again, I'll, I'll say the name of the book, Study Like a Champ, the Psychology-Based Guide to Grade A Study Habits. Uh, obviously, students should pick it up, but uh, to be honest with you, uh, with the chan- changing landscape of work right now, maybe you have to change jobs and uh, you, you have to get a different certification and maybe you haven't studied in 10 to 20 years. I recently <laughs> helped I recently helped a friend of mine uh, who was studying for a certification exam and uh, he came to me asking for uh, for study tips and uh, this was before I, I found your book. And so uh, I, I hopefully I gave him guided him in the right direction. but uh, so it's for this book is for people of all ages and uh, and and I highly recommend it. So thank you so much for being on uh, Regan Garung. Thank you, Ryan. For more on Regan, visit regangarung.com. That's R-E-G-A-N. G-U-R-U-N-G dot com. Purchase a copy of Study Like a Champ, the psychology-based guide to grade A study habits wherever books are sold, or head to Instagram and follow at studychamp22 for bite-sized content based off the new book. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer. Hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that?